0: This is Nailing the Apex and Tim Horaney. Please head on over to Spotify, give us a five-star rating and a follow. Same goes with Apple Podcasts as well. You can also watch us on YouTube. Joining me today from Singapore, home of this weekend's Singapore Grand Prix, from ESPN F1 reporter Lawrence Edmondson. Uh, Lawrence, thanks so much, man, for taking the time to do this. I know it's uh, pretty late there.
1: <laughs> well, it is late. It is isn't. it isn't. <laughs> so, yes, it's now 1.30, nearly, a.m., <laughs> for clarity and uh, that that sounds quite late doesn't it but because of the uh, it's no longer a unique schedule because we also do this in saudi arabia but because of the unusual schedule of a race weekend where the race starts at 8pm uh, everything gets moved much later so people come here um you know from europe and they try and stay more or less on european time
0: mm.
1: um the slight complication uh, this time round and we've had this before as well is that japan is the next race so you've got to get yourself from a kind of European time zone, while staying up at night in Asia, uh, right round to a, a normal Japanese time zone for a normal race weekend, and uh, and that's a challenge. I try that for its a challenge. So yeah, the next few days are going to be tough, but hey, I'm out here reporting on a great sport. So. Oh don't my feel too God. sorry.
0: Still. <laughs> so, okay, it's, uh, what is it? Is it six hours from the UK to, to Singapore, the time change? Or is it uh, the, less the than...
1: The time time change, I think, is uh, seven or eight. Um, I, I have a watch that tells me exactly what it is, so I don't have to work it out in my head. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's I, I think it's, I think it's eight, is it? Okay. Uh, we, we're 12 hours to where you are. Yes. That's, what I'm, that, that's the easy bit to do, because yeah. again, I work with my American colleagues ESPN. Uh, I just have to look at my watch and pretend it's, No longer morning; it's it's evening or vice versa, and uh, and there you go; you've got your got your time.
0: But then once you go to Japan, so what's the time difference from Singapore? Like I guess from the UK to to Japan, what is that? Yeah,
1: so I so I I think having thought about it just now and done a quick conversion in my head, yeah, it's seven hours to Singapore, okay, eight hours to Japan. So we go an hour as well, you know, in in the wrong direction. For what I feel like right now, mm. um, so yeah, it um, it all adds up. But you know, it's interesting talking to um, Valtteri Bottas. Did a, a group media session earlier today, and and he was saying how how he deals with it, and that last night he was up until five a.m. Uh, oh. Apparently, not doing anything exciting because it sounds outrageous, doesn't it? Oh, you're up to five a.m. You must have been out uh, at bars or whatever. But no, he was just up five a.m. doing his emails and stuff. Went to bed, set his, set his alarm for the afternoon. I uh, got up and went to the track, but he said, um, yeah, he will just try and get to Japan as early as he possibly can after the race. And then just immediately try and change the time zone to something a little bit more Japanese.
0: Uh, that's uh stuff. that's pretty, pretty wild. Like what everyone kind of has to do to adjust to the, to, to the time changes. Cause I know the, the folks down at Aston Martin, like what they, so when they're during the race weekend, so they, they will essentially be working at the track just before sun breaks and they'll want to make sure that they're getting back to the hotel so that they don't get the first glimpses of of sunlight which would then ruin off their sleep sleep pattern
1: yeah i mean that 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 sounds absolutely spot on and the other thing you need is is a good set of blackout curtains in your room
0: yeah
1: uh the, the first year i came to singapore i was on a Slightly more modest budget, shall we say? And I stayed in a room without a window at all. And I, I got in there for oh, the this is awful. Uh, but it actually, turned out to be great because it meant there was no uh, sunrise waking me up e- each morning. But yeah, th- there's lots of little tricks teams uh, teams do, and you know they have schedules planned out. They have people that you know really work on this uh, to try and make sure they're mm-hmm. eating at the right time uh they'll have advice on time to do exercise uh they'll use melatonin as, as, a, as, a, as a as a way to try and get sleep so there's all these little things you can do uh to, to, to try and um yeah uh, sort out your body clock and get it as close to uh yeah. where it should be but ultimately it's tricky and then on top of that for the drivers and i guess the mechanics as well you're dealing with one of the most physically demanding races of the season mm-hmm. just because of the heat and humidity which doesn't i mean it Okay, the day is definitely hotter, but it remains hot through the uh through the night and also remains very humid. So there's a lot that the drivers have to deal with, uh, you know, um just before they kind of start performing at, at the level we know they can.
0: Yeah, which is wild. Like the I was listening to the uh the, the pre obviously pre race weekend uh post press or car- press conference by the FIA that they run on Thursdays. And it was just interesting to hear like some of the drivers, what they have to go through within the race, how much weight they lose. Like some of them saying, you know, losing up to eight pounds. And then with the drinks, so the drink bottle in the car and how it eventually turns to hot tea and having to drink that some of them having to drink that. I know Lance was saying that the last 20 or 30 laps, he's, he's drinking hot tea because, you know, he's, Sweats a lot and needs to replenish the fluids, but a driver like Logan Sargent doesn't even touch it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and this is and you know and these things fail as well. So um, you know you can often have a drinks bottle and then it'll fail. I think the 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 largest drinks bottle they can have is one point five liters. That's mm-hmm. very rare. Most of them are smaller than that, just because of where it's got to fit in around the cockpit. And as you say, look, it's going to get very very hot um and yeah so some of them choose not to do it which is pretty crazy i think yeah i'm a bit worried about sergeant he was saying that wasn't he in the press conference yeah. uh that he plans to go without a drink spot and i was just thinking you know first singapore grand prix and it's a it's not gonna be quite as long a race this year because they've changed the track layout slightly and that should mean that it gets under that two-hour time limit that it sometimes runs up to with safety cars but even so, like you know it's tough and i I did a um, interview with uh, dr. Luke Bennett, who uh, used to work for Hintzer in former one and worked very closely with Mercedes and a number of uh, teams and drivers and he said uh you know the the heat stress which is your body the way it dissipates heat um that's one of the big things that you're you're working against and everybody's different, but that can really start uh, to impact along with the dehydration which is the loss of the weight that you mentioned up to eight pounds or so um the the two of those things together can really impact concentration uh Mm -hmm. because the optimum uh i'm gonna have to work in kilos here because uh that's what i was talking to him in uh one to 1.5 kilos is about as much as a f1 driver wants to lose in dehydrate or you know kind of sweating it out um before their cognitive ability is impaired uh so when you're going up to 3.5 uh or, or um yeah or maybe four kilos it's significantly more so um that's why i think we do sometimes see mistakes creep in um and uh i think it's why at this race you know you, you can't underestimate even a driver kind of cruising around just trying to score a point in 10th place that is such a hard workout mm-hmm. uh, often more so if you're in a car that's yeah misbehaving so yeah it's it's very impressive and i mean to keep in mind uh, for anybody who's watching this weekend that uh, yeah there's a lot a lot going on behind the scenes to make sure these drivers are in prime condition
0: yeah and these are you know, the drivers are getting ready for this race, like months in advance. It's not like they started doing heat training two weeks ago or just after the Italian grand Prix. Like they've been doing stuff like this for, for quite a few months so they can get their bodies acclimatized to the harsh conditions that they're going to face. And then obviously on top of all that, the strength that goes into hustling an F one car around a, a track like Singapore, which is not one of the faster tracks. So, which means there's a lot more work being done in the race car for these guys, uh, Pretty impressive, though, nonetheless, of what they have to do, the concentration they have to keep at a track like this, considering all of the uh, harsh elements that are being thrown at them. Uh, We had some uh, war of words between uh, Mercedes and and Red Bull a bit to start this one off, so... um, Following the Italian Grand Prix, uh, where Max Verstappen had set a record 10 straight uh, Grand Prix victories. So Total Wolf, (laughs) during his uh, post-race press conference, uh, had been asked about what, you know, Max had done. And the stat and the record and Wolf kind of downplayed Verstappen's achievements, saying, quote, I don't know if he cares about the records. It is not something that would be important for me. Those numbers. It is for Wikipedia. and Nobody reads that. Anyway, so keep in mind, you know, Mercedes, you know, they did not have a great Italian Grand Prix, so obviously Toto not extremely happy at the end of that one, but uh this quote was actually put forth well, Not the entire quote was put forth but the generalization of the quote was put forth to max earlier on thursday in which he replied with quote i'm not disappointed in that but they had a pretty shit race so he probably was still pissed off with their performance he almost sounds like he's an employee of our team sometimes but luckily not <laughs> yeah. oh lawrence where do you go with this man
1: well, as a journalist and, uh, You're that's it's its way. but if, you know, this is, this is not bad because we've got a season that's where good. we're going into each race kind of not really able to talk about, Oh, who's going to win here? Because yeah. we know that if everything goes smoothly, it probably will be max. Uh, so, um, yeah, it is interesting, but I think it says a lot about the dynamic between those two teams. And, um, at times they claim to have patched things up, but it's clear <laughs> that, uh, they still rub up against each other. Yeah, yeah. And it's clear that, um, yeah. Uh, from a Mercedes point of view seeing Red Bull go and do what they're doing at the moment dominate, uh, do what Mercedes never got round to doing which was win all the races in the season Red Bull are on target for that uh, break consecutive win records as as Max Verstappen has done. I think the most Mercedes ever got was seven with Nico Rosberg, mm-hmm. funnily enough, not Lewis Hamilton. Um, and so all of this, yeah, I think it got to a point with Toto at the end of a, a, a long race weekend where he basically said what he felt, which, you know, again, as a journalist, I don't really have a problem with that. I quite like no, no, it no, no, when no. people, people yeah. say what they they've really got on their mind. Um, and so, and that's what came out. And then, yeah, I think Max's response today was, was absolutely spot on. I think Max should be very proud of winning uh, 10 races in a row. No mm-hmm. one's ever done it before. And that's why mm-hmm. it's the new record. Um, and, and it is massively impressive because it requires mm-hmm. consistency. Uh, Fernando Alonso was actually talking about this at the Dutch Grand Prix after Max had equaled Sebastian's record, Sebastian Vettel's record of nine and said, you know, it shouldn't be underestimated. And he felt that it often is underestimated that when you're in a top car, you know, it is hard to, to string these kind of r- runs together. But um, but um, by the same, like, uh, you know, I, I can kind of understand a little bit because the bit that didn't really get quoted much of, of Toto's media session was that he said, oh, actually, if Red Bull do go and win all the races, I will be impressed by that because that's something we always wanted to do and didn't manage. So he actually did give a little like maybe slightly reluctant tip of the cap uh to uh to, to Red Bull's dominance uh but the, the Verstappen record is an unusual one because I think it requires a number of things one a, a very dominant car and we've seen that many times in the sport but then perhaps one thing that we don't always see which is a teammate who for whatever reason is is really struggling mm-hmm. and uh and Checo obviously is uh now that doesn't, that's not to say Max isn't performing at a brilliant level that's not to say if you threw you know. I don't know, maybe even 80% of the drivers in there, they would actually be able to beat Max. But I think the the margin that Max has over, over Checo at the moment uh, it, is a part of that record. So I don't know whether Toto was trying to get at that. That You know, it's, it's a bit different to, uh, to maybe some of the others. But um, but even so, I mean, I, I, I don't really agree with that school of thought. I do think that winning 10, winning 10 Formula 1 races in a career yes. is a big deal. Doing yes, it in wild. a row is another level.
0: I think uh, you know Jensen Button actually had some interesting comments during uh, I think it was last week uh, up at Goodwood. I think there was a an event going on up there, and he had talked about awesome. he had talked about how um, you know for most drivers I don't think they would want to be in the same car as Max Verstappen at this point. Uh, and you know I tend to agree with what Jensen was actually saying there because you know one I mean this car is geared a little more towards. Max's driving and driving style, but at the same time, like he he's been very faultless this whole season. He hasn't really made any mistakes, Lawrence. Like he's been uh he's been very impressive. Like and he's been in put in some difficult situations. Like it's not like getting to these ten uh, Grand Prix victories straight through has been an easy ride for him. And he has had his moments for sure. And then I think the Dutch Grand Prix was a pretty impressive performance uh from him, considering the different Uh, weather conditions he had to face um, and then having to deal with that damp, drying track and then going back to those conditions again and not knowing the severity of those conditions, red flag. And you've got Fernando Alonso behind you who's hungry for a win. Can't make any mistakes there. And so I think like how Max has gotten here has been extremely impressive. I I think the team, you know, for as long as they've been winning has been impressive. I mean, that goes all the way back to, just after Brazil last season, I think they haven't, they've been, they've been, they've won every race ever since. Like it's been, it's been extremely impressive what they're doing. Do you think they can actually, you know, run the table here? Do you think it can, because I I think the only track left on the calendar that I'm thinking of, that's going to throw up any surprises, I think it's this one. I think it's Singapore.
1: Well, Red Bull seem to think exactly the same. Yeah. They've mentioned that a few times and Max mentioned it again today that, This is a circuit that they think maybe won't suit their car quite as well as some of the others and there is that random element um you know uh, the chances of safety cars are high we saw with max last year here um the team sent him out basically without enough fuel and therefore he had to come back into the pits before his final quality lap and uh obviously didn't qualify as well as he should have and then struggled back to seventh place so you know if you do start out of position it's not a guarantee that you get back to the front Um, I think one of uh, Max's very impressive wins this year was at Spa, where he had the the gearbox penalty but still came through. Mm. Um, Now, but he did that, you know, within a a matter of laps because at Spa, you can easily overtake. Definitely not the case here. So, you know, it's always possible at race weekend, something can just trip you up along the way. We saw in Saudi Arabia this year, of course, drive shaft issue in qualifying. Uh, Max, starting from towards the back, managed to get up to second place. Again, massively impressive uh, behind Checo, but didn't quite win that one so um yeah I, I think there's there's a chance that this is the circuit where something uh, uh trips them up but by the very nature of form one cars and unreliability and all the rest of it you know it, it could actually happen happen anywhere. um and- but, I, but also back back to the red bull can they do the whole clean sweep absolutely like if nothing goes wrong with those cars mm-hmm. yes and um you know max is definitely capable of winning the rest of the races and i think even Checo, you know if, if he was in a position where a race win was all of a sudden on the table again i feel like we'd maybe see a slightly different Checo as well
0: do you think uh because it was do you think for next season anybody can actually catch up to them because it's like it's, it's a conversation that's been starting to do the rounds and then there's been arguments about you know balance of performance and should there be a balance of performance within formula one and for these teams, I mean, the teams obviously don't want it Um, imbalance of performance, meaning for an example, moving around ballast or adding ballast to a, a winner who is running away with the championship or, I mean, cause that's what they did in DTM. If you won one of the races, they'd throw some ballast into the car and in hopes of slowing the team down a bit. So everyone else can kind of catch up and, and play on the same playing field. But when you look at balance of performance, is that something that would interest you? My, my only thing with it is, is that, I mean, obviously you're taking away, I guess, from the purity of the sport, but at the same time, you know, Formula One has a lot of eyes on it now. You know, they have a massive growing fan base. Uh, The sport is really taking off, but I guess the more you get dominance within Formula One, maybe the less you may, be getting the, of those fans, they may start dropping off.
1: Look, I agree that the dominance by any single team in Formula One is not good for the show. It's not; it doesn't make yeah. it any more entertaining. Um, but I, I don't think balance of performance is the answer. Um, I think you know it's a it's a very risky business. And you you think the teams argue now, and you think that they fall out now when yeah. <laughs> while Formula one team is dominating. Imagine if you throw yeah good success point. success ballast kind of dimension in there. And, uh, you know, and again, it, we have to do is look back to 2021 and a decision was made on the final lap of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, uh, that, you know, was very, very yeah. questionable. Um, and that was, it did seem like outside interference from the governing body. And so if, if it was intentional or not, now this would actually, it would be intentional and, and to, you know, really have a situation where, where it can operate and continue to, 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 to be the way it is. I, I just don't, I don't think it would suit Formula One, um, you know what i think we've seen in previous years is that once we get a better understanding of the regulations perhaps some of the regulations can be adapted slightly to uh to, to try and hold one team back it's not always successful but you know we, we have seen it done in the past and it's not always um that up front either you know it's very rare it's often done on safety grounds or or some other kind of grounds uh but but we have seen that you know balancing things out in the past so I don't know whether, whether that's possible or or whether we, you know, the other thing we've we've seen in Form 1 in the past is that if you do leave a set of regulations and you don't tinker with them too much, you mm-hmm. will eventually get convergence. But back to your original question is, can anyone catch a red bull? I, I don't think we're there yet. I think because these uh, regulations are still relatively new, you know, only in the second year, um, and Red Bull found huge gains from their first season to their second season. Uh, Some of that came from shedding weight, but a lot of it came from what they were doing underneath the car and, uh, and the general aero philosophy and just finding a very rich vein of form to tap into. Um, Yeah. I don't think it's going to happen next year. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'd like to, I'd like to think teams will get closer. I think Ferrari and Mercedes especially have um, really pinpointed where they've gone wrong. And a lot of it is not necessarily the outright performance of the car, because we've had a few qualifying sessions where obviously Ferrari got close or beat beat them in uh beat Rebel in Monza, in Azerbaijan, uh then Lewis in Hungary. So, you know, obviously that's not enough to make a competitive season, but it's in the race where where they're really struggling. And a lot of that I think is is, is to do with just the consistency of the car uh through through a race. Um mm-hmm. so that it's one thing to fight it on the knife edge for a single lap and somehow, you know, managed to get pole position, but yeah, doing that over a a full race isn't possible because both the Ferrari and the Mercedes have some some pretty nasty handling traits, but both those teams believe that they've found ways out of it, and, um, you know, as we've seen with other teams as well, the likes of Aston Martin, McLaren, to some extent Mercedes this year, a change in direction can all of a sudden yield quite a lot of performance, so my hope is they get closer, but I do believe that, you know, Red Bull aren't you know, scratching their heads now, thinking how are we gonna add development to this car? Because Mm -hmm. every time they do bring stuff, and you know, they probably don't bring quite as much as other teams because they're slightly limited and of course they'll be looking to next year as well. But when they do bring stuff, it still really works. So it's not like they're lost. They they absolutely know what they're aiming at and they they're, yeah, like I said, mining this very rich uh vein of, of performance at the moment.
0: Yeah, the only thing like I look at is, like you had mentioned with McLaren, you know, this season, and then also with Aston Martin last season, is the, um, the turn in performance. I mean, you could also kind of argue the same about Mercedes as well, because once they had their, you know, uh, once they had their big upgrade added to the car in Monaco, it's been a lot more competitive and a lot more consistent. But for McLaren, I mean, they clawed back like... Oh God, I want to say almost, almost a second, maybe just over a second worth of performance. And they, they've done that in six, seven races within the season. I mean, obviously this is something that was, they were working on before the season got underway. But that being said, it's such a massive shift because of these regulations, because of the, the ATR testing, because of the cost cap, that they were able to kind of do this and, and gain that amount of performance back I think that like, if you can, like like you would said like a team like Mercedes or Ferrari, I think a team like that, or maybe, maybe Aston Martin, if they can just, if they hit on something right away, I think they can claw back quite a bit of that performance to, to Red Bull. I mean, if you, if you look at it, it is mostly race pace. I mean, it's not necessarily quality pace because we've already seen them be qualified by Ferrari and by Mercedes. Um, one at the Italian Grand Prix and the other at Hungarian Grand Prix. But that being said, I just think that if you, if the teams Mercedes and Ferrari in particular, who aren't, you know, hampered by, you know, (laughs) old technology within their factory, they have great employees, they have state of the art, everything, and they have backups of state of the art, everything. I can't see why they can't make a shift like that for next season, um, I think for me, that's just going to be the most fascinating thing when we get to testing in, in Bahrain next year, but yeah.
1: Um, yeah, the, the only thing I'd say there is that it would be the requirement that Red Bull doesn't make that. And that's, it's not yeah. so much, I, I don't think the other teams can make a big gain, but for Red Bull not to do it when clearly they have put a lot of their energy and focus into next year because of the limitations they had this year, which perhaps right. maybe reflects slightly badly on this year's development, what they could have achieved had they had a normal amount of ATR testing. Sure. So, because
0: now they only have 60%. They still only have 60% right. of ATR testing until they get to, I believe it's like the end of October.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I that, 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 that's where I'm a little bit, a little bit skeptical, uh, but interesting as well. You mentioned McLaren, uh, yeah. they've got a big update coming to Lando's car yes. this weekend. And they're talking about that in, in similar kind of terms as, as what they brought to the car in Austria, which was the original breakthrough. Only it's more focused on low-speed corners, which we know mm-hmm. has been a, a weakness for them. So um, it will be really interesting to see if they can make another step. Uh, I, I look, I'm not expecting it lap time to be of, of the same magnitude, but the thing is, like slow-speed corners, you can actually make up a huge amount of lap time because you'll mm-hmm. spend so much time there <laughs> by the very nature of them being slower that uh, that often it, it is a key to unlocking it. So look, I mean, if if McLaren make another step. Of, of of a similar size and kind of almost move into a clear second behind red bull then uh then i think yeah then we can start to think oh wait a minute there's so much potential in these cars mm-hmm. that's yet to be unlocked uh and and maybe uh even red bull can't can't out, outrun that
0: i mean remember when uh you know we were at the british grand prix and all of a sudden mclaren was like <laughs> you know, battling up at the front with like Max Verstappen yeah. and Red Bull. I think a lot of us were like, well, where the hell did all that come from? Right? It was, yeah. it was wild, man. That was, uh, uh, that's a great event too, for folks watching and listening. You definitely want to go and check out the British Grand Prix. It was a ton of fun. I had a blast. Um, let's talk about 80 uh, year old helmet. Marco uh, had made a derogatory comment towards Red Bull racing driver, Sergio Perez, a few weeks ago. Uh, last week, Marco issued an apology uh, now, it's not the first time that, you know, Marco has made a discriminatory comment towards Perez. This past time, though, he's blaming Sergio's poor performances and inconsistencies to that. He is, uh, quote, South American. Uh, you wrote about this on ESPN.com uh, on Thursday. So Sergio uh, was asked about uh, Marco's comments today being Thursday. Um, and obviously you're in Singapore and you would written about this. Can you just give us a little more context as to what happened with all that?
1: Yeah, so um, Sergio uh, kind of said, you know, that he understood where Helmut Marco was coming from, in that he didn't take it personally, he didn't take offence to it, because he said his own personal relationship with Marco, a phrase he used a number of times in in, in the uh, in the press session, meant that he kind of, you know didn't take it too personally basically but he did say he could see why why it is and I think we can all agree offensive um and so it seemed a little bit like Perez was ready to you know just brush it under the carpet and and be done with it but yeah you do wonder you know I mean it's it just seems so out of place now in uh in, I mean it's always been out of place comments like that but um but now yeah it, it really does seem out of step with uh, what the rest of the sport is trying to do uh, to make sure that everyone from every type of background has a chance to perform and, you know, people are, are judged on on what they can do. And, you know, Formula One has the potential to really be a leading light in that, you yeah. know, if you're a top engineer, um, okay, now to get into engineering, of course, you do need certain things in in, in your life. You need certain backgrounds uh, to, to, to probably be able to make, make a go at that. But the idea being that no matter where you're from in the world, uh, what your skin color is, what your religion is, what your race is, if you're good enough in Formula One, there'll be a place for you because performance is what matters above all else. And um, yeah, for Helmut Marco to, even suggest that performance is related to ethnicity. And then, of course, to get it wrong, saying he's South American yeah. when he's from Mexico, it's, you know, it. you just don't want to say anymore. And, and and you're right, it's not the first time Marco's said something like that. But to, as far as I'm aware, it's probably the first apology we've seen. Now, I'm not sure, you know, I don't, I don't think just being able to apologize for things makes, makes that okay. But um, I think there is now a recognition uh, Red Bull, and hopefully within Helmut Marco's mind as well, that you can't say stuff like this. Um, it's not right, and it is offensive.
0: I think we need to get uh, Helmut some geography lessons as well, because Sergio obviously being from Guadalajara and Mexico, uh, North America, unbelievable, man. Uh, Joe Guan Yu signed on with uh, Alfa Romeo, uh, that news came out earlier on on Thursday. So next year's Alfa Romeo lineup is confirmed. Um, they'll also be leaving. So Alfa Romeo, honestly, for those watching and listening, they're also going to be leaving the team. And I'm assuming that that is going to go back to being Sauber. And now Joe Guan Yu will be back with the team, with Valtteri Bottas. Um, he did say for this season that he had targets that he, he had to hit for him to stick around at the team and uh, one of those targets was matching, excuse me, matching his teammate, Valtteri Bottas. And, you know, he's done that. I think at some points uh, he's been a lot better than, than Valtteri. I think some points he's been right on the same mark as him. Some points he's been just a little bit behind, but I mean, it, I, I like Joe Guanyu coming back to this team. He, in my opinion, has been fantastic this season. Considering the yeah. car. I mean the car hasn't been is his car is not good. It's not That's good.
1: right, yeah. Um yeah, I think he's he's measured up well against against Valtteri, and I think uh, there wasn't an obvious reason to get rid of him. Uh the only possibility was uh Theo Porcheo, of course, looks like he's on his way yeah. to the F two title, is one of their young drivers, will continue as their reserve driver next year. And I guess the only question was it is it worth taking, taking a punt on him? But of course, as you alluded to this team, Sauber, as we should really probably start to call them. I know they're still officially out from this year, but Sauber, you know, has a very interesting few years ahead of it. So you've got 24 and 25 where, yeah, I expect it will be the stake Sauber F1 team if, if the current sponsorship deal they have there remains in place. Um, and then it changes to Audi in 2026. And so a lot of everything that's going on the mayor, well, basically everything that is going on there at the moment is aimed towards that 2026 yeah. uh, date because Audi are expecting to come into Formula One and be able to be competitive. Of course, they're building their own power units, very big deal. And, um, you know, they're, uh, they're investing in Hinville, uh, the home of Sauber to, um, to try and make sure they've got a chassis to match it. And at some point they're also going to have to think about which drivers they want in place for, um, 2026 now given the current driver market where most, con- I mean, why we haven't really had much conversation about drivers moving teams is because most of them are actually, were already under contract mm-hmm. for 2024. And a lot of those contracts end in 2024. Um, there's some which obviously go longer. Norris is ended at 25, Max is 2028, but I don't think he's actually in the <laughs> Audi conversation at all, uh, funny enough. Um, but yeah, lots of drivers ending at 2024. So it makes a lot of sense, uh, you know, just for the stability of the team at the moment, whether bringing in Porsche would have worked as a as a rookie. You know, there's a lot of risks involved with that. And yeah, Joe has done nothing which makes you think oh, a rookie could come in and do a better job. You know, it would feel maybe like that, taking a step back, when really what they need to do is have uh, an element of consistency there so they can work on their understanding of, uh, you know, these ground effect regulations which while they are they are going to change quite significantly again in twenty six uh there's still going to be an, an a, you know an emphasis on that and uh, with a whole new technical team there as well i think it's quite wise to keep as many um things in place as you can uh so that you're not dealing with many different types of variables so i i, I agree i i think it's um it was the right decision and uh yeah, let's uh, th- th- see what he can do. I- I'm not sure whether he's. I-, I don't really think he is a long term prospect for them
0: mm. into
1: the Audi era. But um, you know, if he proves me wrong over the next two years, I'll happily see him stay in that seat.
0: Yeah, it's a, that seat is going to be highly coveted over the next few years, eh? Like just because there's been so many rumors about you know who could possibly go to Audi. Could Valtteri stay on and help them usher in Audi into the 2026 uh, championship? I mean, he could possibly again you'd have to keep up his performances but like there's other drivers who are going to be on the market like you you know have pointed out like Lando Norris i mean what's stopping a land like audi throwing a ton of money at Lando and bringing him over right like nothing so i think the next few seasons are going to be extremely interesting down at that team uh in terms of the driver market for sure but for here and the now you know that leaves just williams and alpha tower with seats available obviously Logan Sargent hasn't been confirmed at all for williams for next season and then same goes alpha towery seat with currently uh, Yuki Tsunoda and uh, Liam Lawson um i i, I kind of see Logan sticking around at Williams i, I could be wrong but i can kind of see that playing out it 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 is i think he does deserve another season considering uh considering you know fresh out of F2 and just dumping him into an F1 ride and a tricky car at that it, to begin the season was probably not an easy thing um for him but looking at the two alpha towery seats what do you think happens with um, with those two seats? Do you think Yuki Tsunoda turns into like a reserve driver down at Red Bull, and then they throw Daniel Ricciardo and Liam Lawson in full time at, at Alpha AlphaTauri, or do you think they keep keep Yuki on full time and bring Daniel in and then take Lawson down as the, the reserve driver? Because I that that's an interesting dynamic that's there. Right? You have three really talented drivers. I don't know how you manage that.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really tough uh tough equation to try and solve isn't it um i'd i think it'd be a real shame if if yuki isn't yeah. driving that car next year because i think of those three drivers he's the one who has been by i mean okay look the other two have had a very short go at it but you know yuki really has stepped up uh, addressed a lot of the weaknesses he's had in previous yeah. years and and now looks like a very complete driver but you know i can see uh arguments for lawson considering how impressive he's looked in his short run so far looks like he's going to get another two races so four races starts to become a sample where you can you know take out some of the randomness of F1 race i mean the first race wasn't really fair to to judge him on that because he had one practice session into a wet qualifying into a wet race but even there you know he didn't make a huge error you know it was uh it, it, it was still relatively impressive so um yeah, it, it's a really tough one to figure out. I mean, I, I do wonder whether, uh, the Logan Sargent element, you know, could, could, could come into it as well, because, mm-hmm. uh, there's no reason if, if Williams were absolutely committed to Sargent, not to have done a deal by now, as yeah, far as I'm point. concerned. You know, he's been a part of that team for a while. There's lots of very good reasons to keep him, uh, fr- from that side of it, but the performance hasn't been there because you've got to remember, uh, Williams at the moment are, uh, seventh in the constructors championship ahead of that uh, 10 points ahead of Haas, uh ahead of Alfa Romeo and ahead of Alfa Tauri. And all of those points, I think it's 21 points, all of those points have oh, been scored Alex. by Alex Alba. Yeah. So that car has been, I mean, look, I'm not underplaying what Alex has done. Cause I think he's had an absolutely fantastic season, put himself up there uh, you know, in conversations uh, alongside some of the very best in the sport at the moment. But um, Logan has definitely underperformed. And I wonder whether a solution of some sort would be some kind of loan deal for, whether it's Lawson, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, Yuki, I don't know whether it would be quite the right fit, but yeah, Lawson maybe would would work that way. But um, yeah, I, I've kind of given up trying to second guess the Red Bull <laughs> driver program because uh, sometimes it works in very mysterious ways uh, that some of us struggle to get our head around, like Nick DeVries coming in, doing half a season, then getting beat it out. Do
0: you see... Uh... Switching conversations. I mean, did you see um on the Haas uh social media account this morning? There's a there's a meme of uh Gunther Steiner. <laughs> He's talking to uh De talking to Pedro Della Rosa in the paddock.
1: <laughs> I haven't like, seen this now. Yeah, you have, you have dude, to. Dude, you you have gotta to go take a look, you okay, a look at this.
0: Okay. Literally the, the image is like Pedro De La Rosa is talking to Gunther and Gunther, Gunther's like looking up to the sky with his hand. It looks like he's trying to like hold up a ceiling. while He's talking to Pedro De La Rosa. And then Haas is like basically asking fans to comment on what, what he's actually saying there. It's nice. Wild man. It's, it is, it is unbelievable. Some of the things that that guy does, he's absolutely incredible. Um, Haas in itself, I mean, it hasn't been the greatest of seasons. It's been nice for Nico Hulkenberg in terms of qualifying. Uh, as for Kevin sure. Magnussen, it's been a bit of a disaster as well. But in, in race conditions, it's been horrible for both. Um, so they're set to to ditch this current car concept uh, that they've had for this season. Apparently by the U.S. Grand Prix, it's going, look, uh, it's going to look a lot different. They're going to move closer towards the downwash concept that uh, Red Bull has going for it or is almost perfected um the decision was made before the summer break though lawrence i mean the team knew they had a they they had hit a ceiling with this performance in this in this car and this concept and so they had to make the switch but i mean they haven't spent much of it their their own budget you know what i mean because like if, if you're not going to develop the current car that you have then technically you you have the money that's left over to to develop this into a bigger package and what's surprising is is Haas bringing this forward to the US Grand Prix in terms of the season almost coming to a conclusion and it's for me it's oddly strange why they couldn't pull that off a little bit sooner
1: yeah i think it kind of speaks to um the peculiar peculiarities of the Haas business model which is uh, outsourcing pretty much all of uh certainly all of, all of the construction of the chassis yeah. to uh to Delara, and so um it's probably in a time when you really need efficiency in every sense um aerodynamically obviously but you know in, in terms of your efficiency of, of getting an idea from the design office uh where they have theirs based in Maranello now um onto the car and having as few um kind of roadblocks as possible through that process, you know, that's very much the reason Aston Martin have moved into this beautiful new factory in Silverstone. It's, you know, a lot of it is just based around efficiencies, 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 because it's so important under both the ATR we talked about earlier and the cost cap. And so it seems that, yeah, Hass's model, um, we've seen this in previous seasons as well, seems to work better where they focus uh, a lot on on a big upgrade and it comes to the car, but um, yeah, if, you know, there's no point in adding gunter has said this so many times to the media there's no point in just adding stuff to the car because you feel you need an upgrade it of course has to bring performance and they will not add or you know construct any of these parts until they know that it brings performance so clearly there's something in 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 that whole process that that they slightly delayed And, and also of course the underpinnings of that car are very much Ferrari, um, you know, they take as many bits off the shelf as they are allowed under the regulations from Ferrari uh, to construct that car. And so um, while they still do a lot of their own work, I think there are limitations there, you know, suspension, kind of geometries, pickup points, um, gearbox, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's all based on what Ferrari want to make work that year, and then has is kind of retrofitting around that. And I think there's been occasions start of 2022 when Ferrari arguably had the fastest car on the grid, where that's a great situation to have, because Haas, you know, as well, having a huge amount of um ATR uh, availability built up, having finished last um, and also focusing so much of their budget in 2021 into 2022 nailed it and came out of, you know, the sign blocks very, very fast. But yeah, I think we've seen the limitations again of of, of what is a very different business or maybe business model is not the right word, but very different model of, of, of constructing a racing car, uh, to some of the others. And I think it does have limitations. Having said that, you know, there's, there's some smart people there and if, if they can get it right for Austin, that's good. And, and yes, it is strange to see a team bring an update, such a big update. So late in the season, but if it opens up an avenue of performance development that you want to pursue, uh kind of getting that and knowing that it's the right one by the end of this year will make them much happier and probably in a much better position to extract performance from a car next year which presumably will use exactly the same philosophy so so I get it but um yeah I, I do think it speaks a little bit to to the limitations has just faced because of the way they're set up
0: and then they also have like their MoneyGram sponsorship too. you know uh, uh, with, with all of this as well that was announced back at the U.S Grand Prix uh October last year, so they have the budget, which is which is what I find interesting. And so they have they haven't spent all of all of that budget. And so I have to wonder: is I guess what all can they do with what's left over in terms of of budget? Because I've actually I've never asked one of the teams that question. Like, if you have budget left over, like what what the hell do you do with it? Because you can't spend it on the car anymore. So does that go? into marketing does that go you know c- under your special-
1: c- catering's the obvious answer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> isn't it don't take the red bull route um and just market under the right part of the cost cap. that's no, a good, good question i don't know uh I, yeah I'm, I'm not sure i mean i i feel like look they you know they, they, they would have known the situation for several months yeah. now and i feel like it, it'll be it'll be portioned in the right place but yeah i just think it's just the limitation of that team that uh that's holding them back. And of course, you know, when I talk about efficiency, we can talk about efficiency in time, but also efficiency in money. And, you know, I, I can't believe that their model where they're essentially paying, you know, Delara to build so so many of the parts is gonna be more efficient than teams that can have got their right. own autoclave and are doing it right. in house. Yeah. So it's probably a more expensive process as well, I would have thought. Yeah. I don't know for certain, but
0: yeah. yeah, that's a that's a good point because they do have a lot of their stuff getting made from from Delara as well and they don't really have anything in terms of a giant factory that they can just go and throw parts together in and yeah. you know wind tunnels and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I get that. That's actually an interesting thing and it's an interesting to see if, you know, Haas would be willing to to move away from that model eventually later on down the line eventually build like a full-out, full-fledged factory just for themselves so they could speed up this process for themselves it's fascinating it'd be an interesting story it'd be interesting to talk to gunther about that too um new teams process so andretti global rebranded itself last week so left andretti autosports and is now andretti global so the fia and this kind of where this is all going to fit in here so the fia way back in the winter time announcing you know they would approve uh Teams uh, like an approval process for teams to enter into Formula One. Uh, obviously, F1 wasn't too happy about the FIA launching that process, but at the same time, it is the FIA does have to do that. At the same time, um, I think it would for for this whole situation to, to 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 go down. I mean, the FIA would have to approve Andretti Global and another team. So for the Concord agreement, it only allows the new the Concord agreement. Currently, it only allows for, I believe it's 12 teams. So 24 cars on the grid. And if you're bringing in two new teams, that's two new teams. That's 12 teams. That's 24 cars. But Andretti global has been pushing to try and get a team into formula one, but there's been a lot of pushback from, from F one teams. And I remember, you know, total wolf had, spoken pretty strongly about it during the British Grand Prix. One of the press conferences that, um, that I was in for that. And essentially, you know, i am still trying to wrap my head around the fact that this, they want it to be that whoever the team is, is coming in is bringing value. But I think at the same time, it also has to be the franchising nature of all of this, right? Like the F1 teams have exploded in terms of their, their value. And so, you know, does having this extra team coming in water down that value?
1: Well, that's the big question uh, that we're looking at. I mean, I think kind of almost undoubtedly it does, you know, by the very nature of it, if you're one of 10 and you become one of 12, Mm -hmm. you know, you're less special than you were uh, previously. And I I think that is ultimately the, the biggest reason the other teams have kicked up such fuss. What we have to remember is that the other teams don't really, apart from putting pressure, don't really have any say in this process. The process at the moment is the FIA's one, which uh, they haven't yet announced what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. But it is looking increasingly like uh, they're certainly very keen, from what Mohammed Ben Salem said, the FIA president, uh, to to have potentially two new ones. They could just do one, but uh, it looks like two uh, uh, candidates uh, go forward. But then those candidates have to strike a deal with Formula One, a commercial deal, uh, to fall under what is traditionally known as the Concord Agreement. And essentially, to make it worth their while as well, because um, we've had situations before where we've had more than 10 teams. And under the Bernie Eccleston system, there was a time when certain teams weren't eligible for prize money uh, because they had to finish in the top 10 for, I think, two consecutive seasons to be able to do that. And therefore, there were a bunch, uh, you know, we're talking about the Caterham, Marusha, slash Manor uh, HRT days where, um, you know, where, where they weren't. And you ended up in this very messy situation. So that's what F1 really must avoid. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think would be healthy at all for the sport. And the other argument, the one which I have a a bit more sympathy for, is that that we've only just got to a stage really where we've got 10 healthy teams in F1. A lot of that is off the back of the recent boom in popularity in F1. But just how fragile is that? You know, you can draw a graph and you say, "Well, it's going to continue in this way, and therefore there'll be X amount more money in five years." So, of course, we can sustain two more teams, Um, or you can look at it and say, "Well, what if it flatlines or even drops?" Um, And you know, Hass is a very good example that we're just talking about, and the MoneyGram deal, which which you referenced. Um, You know, if if there aren't enough, you know, if there isn't enough interest in the sport for big-name companies uh, with deep pockets to come in and stick their branding on cars, uh, it all of a sudden does become quite difficult, even under the budget cap, to make these teams profitable. So we've found this situation now where yeah, you can quite easily have 10 teams, all of which now are really quite competitive. Okay, we've got a situation right now where Red Bull's leading, but adding two more teams I don't believe is going to solve, solve that problem, yeah. which is probably F1's biggest problem right now but you've got nine teams behind that. They're very closely matched to the point that, you know, you wouldn't rule any one of them out from scoring points. Uh, and then you've got, you know, the Aston Martin McLaren Ferrari Mercedes battle where you wouldn't rule any one of them out from getting a podium uh, pretty much every weekend you turn up. So, um, you know, that's a, perhaps it, depending on who you talk to quite a delicate ecosystem. Some people would say not so much. And of course you can add two more and, you know, there's plenty going around, but it all depends on how how you look at the sport. Um, I'm quite glad it's not my decision because I'm not entirely sure where I fall on that. But I can see both sides of the argument.
0: I think like one of the things is for for all this process. Like they, I think the FIA obviously has to make sure that all their boxes are checked in terms of Andretti Global or whoever uh, that they deem are going to be relevant enough to to bring some value into the into the sport, but like, I think I, I take a look at all this and, you know, and I remember, I remember it was, uh, I want to say it was Miami Grand Prix 2022. uh, And a big, this, uh, this, this conversation had come up where it's like, okay, well, we, the teams were like, okay, we got to make sure that whoever's coming in here is bringing us is bringing value to the sport. What are they bringing in, et cetera, et cetera. But then my argument back to that would be like, there's probably only a few teams on the grid who actually really bring in value into formula one, right? Like we could probably name four of them right now. And, you know, once we, no offense to Haas or anything like that, but they haven't been in the sport for long enough. They haven't had the successes, um, in the marketing capabilities that the likes of Ferrari, Mercedes, um, Red Bull, now Aston Martin. So it's kind of, I don't view that as, like a like an like a legit argument you know what i mean lawrence like it doesn't
1: yeah and i think a lot of this comes down to how big you think the grid needs to be because yeah i I would say if we lost a team like you know an 18 car grid you know we've seen them before um you know even if it's just cars not starting the race and they do start to look a bit a bit sparse so the value of having 10 teams is you know seems seems quite high but but then, you know, would 12 add more? Would it add a significant amount more? This seems to be what F1 isn't so sure about. Uh, you know, Domenicali hasn't really gone out and said it. He's kind of hinted at it at times. Um, and then there's this bigger debate, and I think this isn't really, again, really what it's coming down to, and it's always down to money, is how much they're paying in this dilution fee, which is currently set at $200 million. <laughs> that's going
0: to and, change. And, and, that's
1: that's and, got to change. And it's got to change, but... <laughs> It's got to change. But then, if these teams now, the ones that the FIA are assessing and are going through all their documents and accounts and everything, and can they go and do this? They've based it on 200. Like, what else could they base yeah. it on? You know, if a number gets plucked out of the air and handed to them and it's, you know, 800 million, like, where they're going to find that? From, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a bit of a messy situation. I think this, and this speaks to the wider politics at play here, where I think, you know, this, this is falling into a bit of a power struggle between the FIA and FOM yes. that predates all of this, you know, that we, we know that's existed. It's almost existed as long as the sport there's been three different dynamics. Of course, Max Mosley, Bernie Eccleston at times, you know, they work together very much, but um, yeah, it, it does seem since uh, Mohammed bin Salim's come in, uh, there's been a desire to prove that the FIA is, is a necessary force in the sport and has yeah. a certain amount of power in the sport. And at the same time, there seems to be a, a kind of push from F1 that, you know, perhaps, you know, some of the FIA stuff gets in the way of, of them going out and and making their money, which is, which is their job. And so quite naturally, I think when you've got a dynamic like that, there is a bit of a power struggle, but my hope is that we don't get in such a messy situation over these two potential new teams, that that kind of flares up and actually damages the sport. Um, but, um, yeah, in the meantime, it's, it's kind of interesting to, to follow. Um, you know, I, I, I think having two two new teams on the grid if they're good and they can be competitive mm-hmm. and those are that's not easily done mm-hmm. um you know we just talked about how difficult it is for Haas and so again we'd need I feel like I would need to know more about the exact details of any team's business model coming in to decide whether they really would add that value yeah. um you know that th- that will be key so an andretti team that can come in and okay maybe not straight away it was going to inevitably take a bit of uh you know kind of getting used to it a couple of years or so but after two years you'd kind of want them fighting in the midfield wouldn't you otherwise yeah um or certainly within that kind of big midfield group that's moving around at the moment so yeah it's uh it's an interesting one but again another one as a journalist hey this is (laughs) this is great yeah
0: Political Uh, power
1: struggles yeah Yeah, absolutely (laughs) give me more
0: give give me more uh for the cost cap so last week the fia releasing the cost cap Obviously that all the teams had received the or were receiving the certificates, so they'd all complied. Uh, this has this is it's not something that's been talked about too much, Lawrence, uh, but th- this is a big, big deal for this to have happened because obviously with Red Bull breaking the cost cap and receiving the penalty that they've received, they had to get this right. They had to make sure that everybody was going to be on the same page and there wasn't good for this thing, for this cost cap to actually work, right? Like this is a big moment, I think, for for Formula One, in particular this, this rule and regulation.
1: It is. I remember this very race in Singapore last year was when we first heard, oh, wait a minute, yeah. two teams have not complied. With the uh, financial regulations, and, everybody's
0: like, "Who is it?" Oh, who yeah, is
1: and by how much, you know? And there yeah. were some wild figures going around. <laughs> yeah, uh, the sort that you know could have seen a team had they had they done it, you know, the, the kind of above five percent level kicked out of the championship and stuff like that as one of the potential penalties. Of course, that wasn't the case. Uh, it was it was much more than that. Um, but yeah, it had it been broken again, uh, it would have been really tough because the FIA then would have had to come up with. A penalty that would act as a real deterrent, because all of a sudden you've got a situation where clearly teams are still willing to push the boundaries yep. and uh, and take take liberties, and if you've got that, it it no longer becomes a fair sport. If, if you know, if you've got teams that you know will always try and push it, so I think it's very important and very positive. This is one story I'm actually glad I'm not not writing and digging into. Uh, it's very positive that that they've all made it because it does. Yeah, it's 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 essential for the for the integrity of the sport going forward. For the cost cap, I think the cost cap is a brilliant uh, and very necessary thing in Formula One that I know it sometimes looks like it's stopping other teams catch up with Red Bull and so on. But I think over time will be a very important yeah. thing. And I think is also one of the key reasons why we have seen the likes of Aston Martin and McLaren make uh, such big gains relative to other teams this year. You know, I think it needs to be there. And also for the health of uh, these new teams, if they do come in, I was talking earlier about, you know, whether the interest in F1 wanes a little over the next few years. But if it does, at least the budget cap kind of helps the teams protect themselves against themselves yeah. for yeah, to some extent. And uh, I, I think... Yeah, it, it's essential that, that that they all complied. This well last year, but uh, it was announced this year.
0: Yeah, it's all full circle, eh? Like it's just so so important that I think this cost cap gets gets put in place. Like you had said perfectly, you know, saves themselves from themselves. Is, <laughs> you know, you can't put it any better than that. To be honest with you, it's it's pretty spot on. I, I I've always been a been a fan of it ever since it was was introduced because I think uh, you know eventually it allows these teams that even have more value. You know, we were talking earlier about, you know, these franchise now being designated as franchises like they do with North American sports and here in Canada as well. It just makes more sense. It offers more value to your, to, to what you own, what you have. And it, that in terms gives formula one more value, which in then terms grows the sport more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it, I think it's, it, it's been a smart thing Um getting a new concord agreement uh i know that's something that's been of discussion lately believe this one ends at the end of 2025 if i'm not mistaken um but liberty media seems that they're going to be able to get this thing done I, i don't know if you've been following any of that story or or not but um do you remember got, do you remember Chase Carey though trying to get these guys to agree on a yeah. Concord agreement? Do you remember that? Oh
1: my yeah. God. Wow, yeah, and, and <laughs> yeah. the years of, of Bernie doing it and wow. cutting Ferrari a deal and just watching the rest of them fall into line. Yeah. And uh you remember uh FOTA, the Formula One Teams yep. Association, yep. and the breakaway in two thousand and nine yep, that they threatened, yep. so you know, it's um we certainly had messier situations than right now, and I think yep. it's because of uh the yeah, the the place that the sport is in off the back of its recent boom in popularity, that hopefully everyone will see sense and, and go along. But of course everyone's always looking for a little bit more of the pie if they can get it. So I think it's the very nature of these negotiations that they probably will end up running up until a deadline and sometimes beyond the deadline to the next deadline extended deadlines because um you know everybody wants to get the very best and it's only when everyone's a little bit unhappy that you know that the perfect deal is being brokered (laughs) and and under bernie's rule i seem to remember lots of people being very unhappy and him usually being quite happy which told you all you need to know about it
0: (laughs) Uh, Lawrence, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to do this. Really appreciate it. Uh, Let everybody know where they can find you and uh, what you've got going on.
1: Yeah, so uh, ESPN.com is is where you'll find most of my work, uh, slash F1. Um, And yeah, uh, what we've got going on well, of course, coverage of the next two races. I'll be in Japan as well, which is always uh, one of my favorites. And I had a sit-down interview with Valtteri Bottas uh, today where we talked about all sorts of stuff that he's doing outside of F1. So that will be coming in the next couple of weeks.
0: Uh, Please tell me you talked to him about his cycling pedigree. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. A a little bit, a little bit. So it's mainly like business deals and investments, but we did talk about his cycling and, um, yeah. uh, And, you know, he's pretty good. He's really, really, very good. And and, and also, sorry, I was going to say, I sat down for the interview and he was wearing a, a kind of polo shirt and some, quite short shorts uh and and he's got he's got real cyclist tan lines going now like a real straight line from wearing the uh i don't know whatever it's the lycra i guess that they were yeah. um yeah so uh no he's, he takes it very seriously and he is he is pretty good he's winning competitions in duffman yeah, he, costumes yeah, that's <laughs> you know, it's, it's impressive he,
0: he beats alistair brownlee like yeah,
1: yeah exactly yeah.
0: in a cycling array like that's great that's that's nuts to me. Like, that's crazy. Cause I actually like followed, well, I didn't follow the race, but I, when the race was over, I actually went back and went through the finishing order to see where like all the big time cyclists and triathletes ended up. And sure. I was like, the Bottas. I'm like, what the hell is he doing there? And then I'm yeah. like, Alistair Brown. <laughs> I, yeah. like, I was like, he beat Alistair. But so I ran into him at the Canadian Grand Prix. I was talking to him in, uh, in the tunnel that goes up to the media, uh, Media room there at the at the track, and I was talking to him about it. And I'm like, like you beat Alistair Brownlee, dude. And he's like, he said, like, I didn't even know I passed him. He's like, apparently <laughs> I passed my like, like, Didn't even know. Like, he was telling me the whole story how it went down. Yeah, this <laughs> is dying laughing, man. He's a good dude, though. Hey, like he's he's fun to talk yeah. to.
1: Yeah, he, he's a re- really nice solid guy, and I think yeah. at the moment we're seeing the real Valtteri um, that I don't think we always saw at Mercedes due to the pressures that go with being at a top team up against Lewis Hamilton say so, no I think he's um he's in a really good good part of his life and it's it's lovely to see and I hope that he you know and one thing he made very clear in the interview even though we didn't really talk about F1 was that he intends to stay uh for for many years to come nice. so um we'll have to see whether he becomes part of that that Audi deal going forward
0: nice thanks again Lawrence for taking the time to do this really appreciate it man